bring you, um, I think, an important message this morning from the Word of God. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can go to Matthew chapter 5. And the question I, wanna, I want us to consider this morning is this. Who's going to make it into heaven? Who's going to make it into heaven? That's a pretty important question, wouldn't you agree? Maybe we don't think about that just in the routine of our everyday lives, but really from the vantage point of being human beings, I'm not sure there's any more serious question that could be considered. If there is a heaven and a hell, and the Bible talks much about both of those, and if heaven and hell are forever, while this life is just a blip on the screen of eternity, then the answer to that question should be of supreme importance to human beings. Who's going to make it into heaven? And more personally, will I make it into heaven? And will you make it into heaven? I think you could ask the same question in several different ways. Who will be accepted by God? Who will have obtained the favor of God when it's all said and done? Who will be qualified to dwell in God's presence and live with him forever? Imagine that question being taken up on the view. What kinds of answers do you think that you would hear coming from that group? Well, as you know, we're walking together through the Sermon on the Mount, this famous sermon of Jesus Christ, and you can pull that study guide out of your worship folder so you can follow along with us this morning. And in the passage that we're coming to today, Jesus is going to answer that question, that vitally important question, who will make it into heaven? But he's not going to answer it in the way most people would think. In fact, Jesus states his answer in a way that many people, including many people who call themselves Christians, might wonder about. So here's the passage, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus speaking, do not think, so he's correcting some wrong thinking, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not an iota, not a dot, that word means just a little serif on the end of a letter, the smallest part of a single letter. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here it is, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there in that setting, with a crowd gathered around him and his disciples kind of in close there, Jesus states quite clearly that the only people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who are righteous, super righteous, as a matter of fact, uber righteous, more righteous even than those who are widely acclaimed to be the most righteous and most religious people of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I've admitted to you that I read the Sermon on the Mount through a particular set of lenses. I've come to agree with the interpretation of Martin Luther and and the other reformers who believe that in this sermon, Jesus was contrasting two different ways of approaching God, two kinds of religion, two plans for being right with God. 
Jesus knew that most of the people of his, days, of his day believed that righteousness had to be earned. That is, if you wanted to be accepted by God, you had to do your very best to live a good, moral, upright, upstanding life. And those people figured that would get you in. And I suspect that if this topic were tackled on The View, that's mostly what you'd hear. God will accept people who try really hard, who cut out their bad habits, who refrain from hurting people and do good in the world. That's surely all that God requires because he's a reasonable person and he's love and he would not certainly demand more than our best efforts. I call that the performance plan. It's the religion of human achievement that believes that human beings by their best efforts can be as righteous as they need to be in order to gain the favor of God. And of course, it would certainly need to include some of God's forgiveness also, right? Because humans know that they mess up sometimes. And so that's the joint effort in this view, kind of a, a cooperative joint effort between us and God. That view can be represented by a kind of equation, a moral equation that I've put there on your outline. It goes like this, my best efforts plus God's forgiveness of my screw-ups equals heaven for me. I think most people think that way. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the vast majority of people now and even back then think that way. They're on this version of the performance plan. I need to do my absolute best, and God will take notice of that, and hopefully he'll forgive my mess-ups, and that's going to get me into heaven. Now, there is another plan for being accepted by God. It's interesting to me that Jesus only hints at that plan in this sermon. And the reason for that, I think, is that Jesus knew that people first must become extremely dissatisfied with the plan that they're on before they're open to something else. And so Jesus spends most of this sermon kind of poking holes in the performance plan, trying to stir up dissatisfaction in the hearts of his listeners so that they would stop and say, oh, <laughs> I guess the plan that I've been banking on to get me into heaven isn't going to work. I sure hope there's another plan. Throughout this sermon, Jesus, in effect, is basically saying, look, the bar is set higher than you think it is. God can't lower the bar. He can't lower his standards and still remain true to himself. He is righteous. He is pure. He demands total obedience and complete righteousness for those who would dwell with him. You who think the performance plan will get you in need to realize that you're actually lowering the bar in order to feel good about your chances, kind of like shooting an arrow and then painting a target on the wall and saying, see, look, I hit the target. Jesus was saying that lowering God's standards or the attempt to lower God's standards is sinful. It's wrong. He basically here is saying, I have come to reestablish, reinforce, reset the bar, and intensify the high demands of God's holy law. And we're going to see this in the section we're looking at today. Now you need to know that this passage right here has given many commentators heartburn over the years. They've struggled with it. It's a challenge to interpret it accurately. 
with one set of lenses on, you could read this as Jesus actually advocating the performance plan, saying, well, if you want to be righteous, you'd better get at it. I think that would be misreading this passage. Remember, Jesus is looking out at a crowd of people who had been steeped in performance plan religion since they were in the cradle. Some of them are feeling quite superior to others, thinking falsely that they were doing all the stuff that God required of them. But others there in that crowd were beat down, weighted down, crushed under the heavy load of laws that the religious teachers had heaped on their backs. Then Jesus bursts onto the scene. He sounds different than their other teachers, and frankly, he lives different. He was already known to have disregarded some of their regulations and laws that the rabbis had put into place. He didn't do all those ceremonial washings that they had stipulated. He did stuff on the Sabbath day that they considered to be working, so they viewed him as a lawbreaker. And so many people who knew about Jesus were kind of wondering, who is this guy? What's his deal? How does he view the law of God? What's he going for? Does he speak for God? And what does he think that God requires of us? So what we see in this section is Jesus making five statements that speak to those questions. First, a correction. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Apparently some people were thinking that. We might have thought that too if we had been raised like they had been raised and then saw and heard what Jesus was doing. But Jesus wants to smash that misconception right off the bat. He did not come to nullify God's law. That's what the word means, to abrogate it, to set it aside or do away with it. He did not come to set aside the Old Testament. On the contrary, Jesus held a very high view of God's law, as we're going to see in a moment. Then he clarified what his true intent was. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Beautiful word. To fill it out, to flesh it out. This is one of the most rich, pregnant theological statements that Jesus ever made while he was here. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we'll see if we can unpack that a little bit. Then he makes this sweeping declaration establishing the, the enduring permanence of the law of God. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, I'm not here to abolish God's law. No one can do that because God's law is indestructible. It will remain in force till the end of the age. Every last little commandment will remain in effect until its purpose has been completely fulfilled. Now, Remember the heartburn I, I mentioned? This verse has made scholars run for the Tums for centuries. Well, what, whoa, does this mean that Christians should still be worshiping on Saturdays, the Sabbath? Should we erase pork chops from our menu? Should rebellious children be stoned to death like they were in Old Testament times? <clears throat> We won't comment on that. If the law is still in effect, where does grace come in? So we'll see if we can shed some light on how God's law functions in this age of grace. 
And then Jesus made a specific application based on his high view of the law of God. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, do not lower the bar. God's holy law is not only indestructible, it's inflexible. It is what it is. Jesus is upholding the law of God by saying that attempting to lower the bar for yourself or for others, teaching them, will be frowned upon by God while faithfully holding his standards high will elevate your status in the kingdom of God. And there's so much here. We'll see if we can at least scratch the surface some on that. Finally, all of this leads to a solemn warning regarding who will ultimately make it into heaven and who won't. Verse 20. The warning, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's the answer to our opening question, right? The requirement for entering heaven, according to Jesus, is having a righteousness that is greater than what most of the religious people of his day possessed. Without that, he said, the doors to the kingdom of heaven are shut forever. It's interesting to me that in the very next section of this sermon, Jesus is going to tell his listeners what this hyper-righteousness looks like. And he's going to use the same formula multiple times to get his point across. He's going to say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Let me give you a couple of examples. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Part of the law of God, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So evidently, The righteousness that God requires is a whole person goodness that goes deeper than just behavior. It goes to the heart, right? To desires, to motives, to intentions, to passions. In fact, just to put an exclamation point on this, at the conclusion of this section of this sermon, Jesus makes this outrageous statement, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So that's what God requires? Wow. Can you you feel the reaction of those people who were there that day when Jesus made that statement? Can you feel it? Similar perhaps to some of your reactions here in this room. What? Be perfect? Be as perfect as God? That's the standard? Heaven is only for perfect people? Well, then I don't have a chance. No one does. Exactly. Exactly. Do you see here that Jesus is brilliant? I mean, he's brilliant. He's carefully and skillfully bringing people to a place where they have to say to themselves, I certainly hope there's another plan. I hope God is merciful and has made a way for imperfect people to be made perfect in his sight somehow. 
If sinless perfection is the standard, then I sure hope there's a plan that gives righteousness to people as a gift instead of it having to be earned. Because I can never earn that. You see, prior to that realization, people don't really value the good news of the gospel. It's just kind of ho-hum news. In fact, it sounds kind of foolish. A king coming and dying for for his people? When a person grasps how high God's standard really is and how far short they fall of it, then the good news starts to sound really good. The grace plan starts to sound wonderful. And we run to it. We run to it. Now, I'm going to attempt to tackle a few questions that arise from this very interesting passage. I need you to stay with me. It's going to feel a little bit like a seminary course for the next couple minutes, okay? First question, what's the relationship between the law, God's holy law, and the gospel? If you're a follower of Christ, this is important to understand. In fact, I think it's important for everybody to understand. People are often confused about this. So I'm going to quote some dead guys, okay? Charles Spurgeon, from 130 years ago, said this, There is no point on which men make greater mistakes than on the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel, others put the gospel instead of the law, and a certain class maintains that the law and the gospel are mixed. These men understand not the truth and are false teachers. Theodore Beza, the successor to John Calvin at the church in Geneva, wrote this, Ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuse which corrupted and still corrupts Christianity. Martin Luther wrote this, Hence, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between the law and the gospel, him place at the head and call him a doctor of holy scripture. Now there are some living guys who understand this. One of my favorites is Dr. Michael Horton. Listen now, he wrote this. At the heart of the Reformation's hermeneutics was the distinction between law and gospel. For the Reformers, this was not equivalent to Old Testament and New Testament. Rather, it meant in the words of Theodore Beza, we divide the word of God into two principal parts or kinds. One is called the law, the other the gospel. Everything else can be gathered under one or the other of these two headings. The law is written by nature in our hearts, the Bible says, while what we call the gospel is a doctrine which is not at all in us by nature, but which is revealed from heaven, has to be preached into us. The law leads us to Christ in the gospel by condemning us and causing us to despair of our own righteousness. With me so far? Okay. He goes on to say this. Listen, in much of medieval preaching, well, that's when those guys were living, right? The law and the gospel were so confused that the good news seemed to be that Jesus came as a kinder and gentler Moses, who softened the law into easier exhortations, such as loving God and loving your neighbor from your heart. The reformers saw Rome, speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, as teaching that the gospel was simply an easier law than the Old Testament laws. Instead of following a lot of rules, God, they said, expects only love and heartfelt surrender. To which John Calvin replied, as if that was easier. (laughs) 
as if we could think of anything, he said, more difficult than to love God with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our strength. Compared with this law, everything else should be considered easy. You know, tell me that I shouldn't put my hand in the cookie jar and steal a cookie. Okay, I can refrain from that. Tell me I should love my neighbor as myself. That's hard, right? What if my neighbor's a jerk? What if I don't like them? What if they don't like me? What if they don't mow their lawn? I mean, it's outrageous. Here's what Calvin said. The law cannot do anything else than to accuse men, to condemn them in God's judgment that God alone may justify. Thus, Michael Horton writes, the law condemns and drives us to Christ so that the gospel can then comfort us without any threats. So let's say it like this. The law... God's law demands of us what God requires, and the gospel delivers what God demands. Those are the two words there. I kind of snuck that one in. What God demanded, God delivered. That's good news, amen? What God prescribed, God provided. That's the grace plan for people getting into heaven. Believing that, relying on that, trusting in that. And that's the only plan that will be found to work in the end, by the way. And all that leads us to the next question. What are the functions of God's law? A lot of confusion about this. We noted earlier, Jesus declared that the law of God would endure forever and remain in force through the end of the age. That begs the question, how so? So let me give you five Forever functions of the law of God, okay? First of all, God's law acts as a curb in society, a curb, like a boundary, a guardrail. You say, what do you mean? Well, in society, the law of God, to the extent that civil laws reflect God's laws, serves to restrain gross outbreaks of sin in society. It's a deterrent to sin. Did you know that people are not as evil as they could be in part because of the laws of the land? (laughs) There's a restraining, there's a a restricting, a restraining, a curb-like function of the law of God. 1 Timothy 1.8 says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Law functions as a curb in culture, restraining gross, flagrant outbreaks of sin. It's a good function of the law, right? That's why we need to work to get God's law respected everywhere. Second, the law of God functions as a mirror, a curb, but then personally as a mirror. What I mean by that is it shows humanity a reflection of their true selves before God. It defines sin. It tells us what sin is. It makes human beings conscious of sin so that we see clearly how sin has corrupted us. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law is a mirror. We look at it and go, oh, that's my condition before God. I don't measure up. Third, the law functions like gasoline. (laughs) Probably haven't thought of it like this before. The law of God inflames the sin that is within human beings. It provokes and magnifies our sin. 
Well, this is true, isn't it? Every time you drive down the highway and see that sign that represents the law that says, only drive 65, and you go, maybe, if I feel like it, I might just drive 70, just because I want to, and I'm free. I mean, the law has, you, you tell your little children, don't do that, and what do they do? check that you know it's in us the law Romans 5 says came in to increase the trespass it provokes sin so that sin looks exceedingly evil number four the law is a tutor or a guide or a pedagogue or a schoolmaster the law of God drives humans to despair of our ability to live up to its demands and then directs us to a savior who did so on our behalf the law, Galatians says, is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. We look at the law and we say, we don't measure up. And the law says, you better look for another plan. <laughs> you better look for a savior. And number five, the law is a portrait. By that I mean it shows us what a Christ-like life looks like. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, to flesh it out, to fill out the law. Did Jesus love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself? You bet he did. Did Jesus keep the Ten Commandments? All of them, every moment of his life. The law gives us a portrait of what a Christ-like life looks like. It's a description of Jesus. And so understanding all of these functions of God's law, we can see that it will indeed remain in force until the end of the age. It'll never cease to be a curb restraining evil in the world, a mirror that shows people how far short they fall of God's standards, a can of gas poured onto the sinful fire burning within the human heart that shows just how evil humans really are, a schoolmaster to then direct sinful people to our Savior and a portrait of the Christ-like life that Jesus lived perfectly and that all of his followers desire to imitate as we follow in his steps. Did you get all that? How did Jesus, next question, fulfill the law? and the prophets. He said, I came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How so? Well, think about it. Jesus fulfilled the moral law, as I said, by perfectly living out all the righteous demands that we find in the Ten Commandments. Did Jesus ever steal? Did he ever covet his neighbor's wife? Did he ever commit adultery? Did he ever murder? Did Jesus ever take God's name in vain? Did he honor his father and mother? Was God central and first in Jesus' heart always, 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 all the time? That's how he fulfilled the moral law of God. Second, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law of God by offering himself as the ultimate lamb, the Passover lamb, the, the lamb, the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. The ultimate Passover lamb slaughtered for the sins of the people, an atoning sacrifice that fully and finally satisfied the righteous wrath of God against our sin. That's why the sacrifices ceased after Jesus when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, it's done. Third, Jesus fulfilled the prophets by coming as the fulfillment of everything they predicted and prophesied. A coming Messiah, a suffering servant of God, a reigning king. He came as all of those things. Number four, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, which, which really is a reference to the whole of the Old Testament by fulfilling all the types and shadows presented in the scriptures. Now, we've taught this before. Jesus knew that the Old Testament was primarily about him. Now, you 
read it and you think, oh, I thought it was about Moses and Daniel and Jonah and Abraham. And in John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures <clears throat> because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. <laughs> Jesus came as the true Israel, didn't he? Succeeding where Israel has failed. He came as the true tabernacle, the true rock, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread, the true temple, the true vine. He was the true prophet, priest, and king. He was the true fulfillment of all the types in the Old Testament, including all the Old Testament characters who foreshadowed him. I love how Tim Keller paints this picture, picture for us. Listen, Jesus came as the true and better Adam who passed his test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create the new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. While God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Amen. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him to his captors and now uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who now intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in ways that we never even imagined. They all pointed to him. Every single one of them. And then number five, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by teaching the Old Testament as it was meant to be taught. Like when he was walking along the road with those two guys on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and they were all confused and perplexed about all the events that had happened. And it says he opened their eyes and in verse 27 of Luke 24 it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Biblical theology from Jesus Christ himself. So we need to understand that in every conceivable way, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And here's the beauty of all this. Get it. He did it for us. He did it for us. He fulfilled the law for us. He lived the righteous life we could never live for us. That's why scripture says in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, see the law gives no power, it just makes a lot of demands. 
what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature of the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, that's Jesus, who became sin, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in who? Us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. It's like exchanging report cards with the smartest kid in the class who got straight A's. And you stand before God one day, and you hand him that report card, and he says, straight A's, cool, welcome, come on in. And you know it was a gift. The righteous requirements of the law fully met in us. You see, there are three kinds of righteousness. Earned righteousness, gifted righteousness, and grace-powered righteousness. Earned righteousness is a proven failure. No one can earn it. Imputed, gifted righteousness. The theologians call it alien righteousness. It means it's got to come from outside of us. It comes from Jesus and given as a gift. Grace-powered righteousness is the increasingly holy desires and conduct that flow from the transformed hearts of people who have embraced the grace plan. You know, Christians talk a lot about Jesus' sacrificial atoning death for our sins, right? And we should. We should talk about that a lot. But in so doing, let's not neglect the law-keeping life of Jesus, the righteous life that Jesus lived, his perfect record of obeying God's holy law for all of those 33 years, that's what enables the second half of that salvation transaction to be completed. He takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, right? See, getting into heaven is not just a matter of being forgiven of sins, it's a matter of having righteousness, both have to happen. He took our sins, gave us his perfect record of righteousness, which he wouldn't have had if he didn't live that way for those 33 years, but he did, and so we can. The great exchange, Martin Luther called it. He takes our sins upon himself, pays the just penalty for them, and then gives us his perfect record of righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's wonderful, isn't it? That we can be declared righteous before God Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Imagine God looking at you and seeing the record of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. So let's go back to where we began. Who will make it into heaven? Who's going to get into heaven? From this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, we can draw four conclusions, I believe. One, who will make it into heaven? Those who share Jesus' elevated view of the law of God. Not lowering the bar, not shooting the arrow of their life and then drawing a target around it. But those who say, no, God's law is holy, it's high. Second, those who are humble enough to admit that they haven't lived up to the high demands of God's law. I can't, I can't. I haven't. Third, those who understand that Jesus was the only one to ever fully keep the law of God. The only one. I know your mom's a wonderful person, but she hasn't kept the law of God all of her life. I know you're, well, we'll stop there. Number four, 
Who's going to make it into heaven? Those who see Jesus as their only hope for ever being righteous and who by faith receive his righteousness offered as a gift. In short, people who will make it into heaven are those who reject the performance plan and embrace the grace plan that Jesus offers, only found in Christ. All right, I've got a four-minute bonus section for you, okay? It's not on your outline and there's no white space to write left to write anything is there so let's just ask this uh, what about us believers followers of Jesus does are there any applications in here for us who have embraced the grace plan and are followers of Christ let me offer several to you number one we must esteem God's law highly and teach its demands unashamedly doesn't that flow from what we just read I mean if you're a parent how many of your parents? Okay. Good. Teach your children the Ten Commandments. Teach your kids the law of God. Raise the bar high. That's what we're trying to do here in our children's ministry here at New Life, to come alongside parents and reinforce what you're hopefully teaching them at home, that God is holy and righteous and his standards are very, very high. Teach your kids the Ten Commandments. Help them to see that they fall short, but don't leave it there. Then teach them the good news that Jesus, God's Son, came and lived the life they could never live and then died to pay for their sins. So do show them God's holy law, what he demands. Don't lower the bar, but then make sure to give them the gospel as their hope. And even after they accept the gospel, continue to show them the gospel as their hope. It's our hope for all of our lives. All of our lives. I think there are two extremes to avoid. One is always talking law and never grace. The other is always talking gospel and never even mentioning any of the commands of God. Both law and gospel have their place even in the new covenant, but whenever we do teach God's law, we must do it in such a way that makes them long for the good news, makes them long for the gospel. Here's a second application. We, we need to work to get God's law respected everywhere. Everywhere we can. It's that important. I first heard that from Tim Keller. I think he's right. Remember that first use of the law, a curb, a curb, a restraint in culture. Law restrains evil in society. Therefore, we need to vote and elect government officials who have a high regard for God's law and who will work hard to align our civil laws with God's laws. That's why I don't mind having the Ten Commandments posted in our nation's courtrooms or in the Supreme Court room. It serves as a reminder to all of us, including judges, that we all live under a higher authority than ourselves, higher than the will of the people, higher than the will of a judge. God is sovereign. He makes nations. His law trumps man-made regulations. It's just wise to craft civil laws that reflect God's law. It's also why as Christians we work for justice in this world. It's why right here in this room yesterday we hosted a human trafficking symposium to just raise awareness about what's going on and how young girls in particular are being oppressed and abused in our culture. It's why we have people in our church who go into the prisons and care for prisoners and preach the gospel and people who go serve in homeless camps. That's why we do all that. Third, we must allow God's law to accomplish its function in us and others. 
curbing evil in the culture, reflecting our true hearts before God, showing us how wicked our hearts can be, driving us to the Savior, showing us what a righteous life looks like. We must live and teach in a way that lets God's law do its work. As believers, we must receive, rest, and revel in the righteousness supplied to us by the only righteous one, Jesus. Amen? Receive it, rest in it, and rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Do you ever find those words tumbling out of your mouth? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Sometimes when I'm not up here preaching, I uh, stand back there on that little perch that Kyle built. And I get a whole different perspective during worship. For one, I see the back of your heads instead of the front of your heads. <laughs> or two, I kind of get a feel for the whole room. And because I stand up here during worship, I don't get to see like what's going on. And, and, and I know that many, many of you are getting this. And your, your worship is, is expressive of how grateful you are for the righteousness of Christ given to you. That's wonderful. Others of you, I wonder. <laughs> Not that expressiveness, you know, is some gauge or measure of your spirituality, but I just, I just wonder if you get it. Because if you got it, I mean, your heart would be like erupting, like, wow, thank you, Jesus. And then lastly, we must allow Jesus, through his spirit in us, to flesh out his righteousness in our lives every day. You see, it's not live righteous and you'll be accepted. It's not that. It's find acceptance in Jesus Christ and you will want to live righteous. Big difference. Everything you truly need, you already have in Christ. So you're now free to live your life loving God and loving people. That's the point. And that's good news. Well, we'll learn more about that when we continue into the next section in a few weeks. But... Let me just ask you this as I finish. How many of you would raise your hand and just say, I learned something today that I didn't already know about the law of God or the gospel or the uses of the law? Okay, good. I was hoping, I was hoping that you would. Well, we're going to respond now to what we've heard in the word of God. And our worship team is going to come back. Our prayer partners are going to take their place, willing, ready, and available to pray with you this morning for whatever's on your heart. I wonder if you're here and you're feeling condemned, exhausted, weary of trying to be good all the time. You ever get tired of trying to be good all the time? Wanting to get off the performance treadmill, maybe today you just need a fresh drenching in the grace of God. Wouldn't that be cool? You just walk out of here spirit uplifted. If that's you today, I would encourage you to come and receive prayer from our prayer partners. I just need a fresh drenching in the grace of God. Let them pray over you. Maybe today you're a parent and you see the need for wisdom and how to apply law and grace to your children. You know, which do I apply to, apply to which child when? You know, that takes a lot of wisdom. Maybe you'd like to just come and pray about that or ask for prayer regarding that. Lord, I'm a parent. I need wisdom. Sometimes as parents, we don't feel equipped to handle those things. Maybe today you're rejecting the performance plan and embracing God's grace plan for making it into heaven by faith. And if that's the case, I pray you'll come and just confess that to someone. I'm, I'm embracing by faith Jesus today as my righteousness, my only hope. Or maybe you're feeling compelled to demonstrate your love for Christ by working for justice in this world. 
helping those who can't advocate for themselves. Well, let's respond to God's word. Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us today. Have your way. Have thine own way, Lord, in our lives. Speak to us. Receive our worship now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship. Come and be prayed for if you'd like to do that.